Welcome to It's All About the Questions, where learning to ask the right questions can help you achieve lifelong success. Now, here to help you ask all the right questions is award-winning author, international speaker, and business strategist, Laura Stewart. Good morning, good afternoon, and evening, everyone, and welcome, welcome to the show. As always, as I said just a moment ago, before I forgot to hit the record button, this is my favorite time of the week because I get to ask amazing questions of guests that have shifted my thinking, that have changed the way I look at things. Because when we use questions to change our lives, it is unbelievable the transformations that can happen. When we ask questions of the right people and of ourselves that get us the answers that we need and get this, not always the answers we want. Because I mean, how many times have you asked questions to get the answer you want and you didn't get the answer you wanted. So you kept going from person to person to person to person until they gave you the answer you wanted. Then what happened with your life? I don't know about you, but my most amazing transformations happened when I was willing to be a little uncomfortable with the answers that I got. And sometimes those questions and those answers come from the strangest corners of the universe, like they have from my friend Stephen Kaufman over here. He wrote a book several years ago. We met at a Brendan Burchard event. He wrote a book called The Garbageman's Guide to Life. And I thought that was the coolest idea for a book. And I remember reading it and thinking to myself, what can I learn from a garbage man? And then I went, oh my God, all that head trash that we have, that's garbage, very much like what you see when we put our garbage out. And it was mind blowing to me because Stephen ran a huge waste management company right, Stephen? And now you have taken all these lessons you've learned from this incredible life you have, and you're helping people transform their businesses because you have spent your career transforming businesses. So welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I am just thrilled to be here again and uh, just love the work that you do. Thank you very much for having me. Well, thank you. And thank you for being here. I mean, I know you're hobbling around on crutches right now. (laughs) Having done that too many times in my life, I it is not fun and it can be uncomfortable sitting in a chair. So thank you. You're welcome. It's great to be here. Um, You know, your, your life has taken you in so many different directions, Stephen. And we were chatting the other day, catching up and it just kind of blew my mind the work you're doing now because when we get brought into a company, I mean, you and I do a lot of consulting work for companies and, and most of the time people bring in consultants when, when they're scared, right? Yeah. When they realize something has gone south. And we both always go, well, what if you had brought us in before it went south yeah. and we didn't have to deal with a turnaround? Yeah. So talk to me about what goes through your mind when you get called into a company in these kind of situations. Yeah, that's a great question. I think the first thing that I walk in in a little personal revelation is that many times it's in an industry that I know nothing about. So, you know, you have to, you bring years and years of experience, but you don't understand next necessarily the context. 
And so just making sure you can apply what you know to the specific problem that company may face, especially if it's in an industry you're not familiar with, it's always a little nerve wracking. But the biggest thing that I do that I found helps me as a consultant is just to be quiet and listen. Is that you walk in, there's usually angst if you're in sort of a turnaround or a a situation that they've got. For example, this one firm that I'm working with was in the middle of a fairly contentious appeal for tens of thousands of dollars of personal property tax that they were at odds with, with the county. And so I came in, that was the first project that I jumped in with. And so having the ability to go in and just be quiet, listen to what the problems are, understand the personalities a little bit, and then begin to offer solutions instead of that gung-ho enthusiasm, I can fix this. And you miss a lot if you go in both barrels ready to go. That's probably the biggest uh, lesson that I've learned over the years. Well, in that listening to what has occurred inside of a business, do you find that the perception and the reality of what they think has occurred may be like at opposite ends of the spectrum? That's a perfect example of that is when I came to this one firm, the owner was so nervous about what constitutes personal property tax, like what items are taxed, literally had gone around the office with little blind green dots that you get, you know, at Office Depot and was putting them on the stapler, on the coffee cups, because they were afraid that he's going to have to take inventory of all of that. Okay. Until I was able to say, no, that's not quite how it works. And, you know, we'll asset tag these things, but the rest kind of get counted as a group of general office supplies. And so that's very common, especially as we all know, when there's a problem and you're in the middle of it, it's always worse than you think it is. And when emotions kick in, it's hard to see things objectively. So your question is spot on, is that many times when you find a business in distress, they may feel it's worse than it is, or sometimes it really is that bad, but your job as a consultant is to sort of see, be the objective third party. I have nothing emotionally invested in this except to make you successful and solve your problem. And that calming effect, if you, it helps cut through that emotion, helps you get down to business to begin the process of fixing whatever's ailing the company. You know, I've been inside companies that are Fortune 50 companies down to small businesses. And that angst, that fear, that overwhelming, oh my God, now what do I do, is tends to be the norm. But then you also get, as soon as you walk through the door, the well, you know, I was told I needed you, but I really don't because the problems aren't as big as we really think they are. How do you handle that kind of conversation to get to what the realities are inside of business? Do you bother trying to figure out where, when the problem started or does that not matter? It depends on who's involved. So let's create a hypothetical, which is you are called in, say, by the owner that says something's wrong with my financials or I've got a cash flow issue or I've got a vendor interruption and I can't figure it out. 
and you go in to take care of it and you begin and you meet, say, the management team or the executive team and you notice the cold shoulder from the CFO or the head of purchasing, whatever it is, you may find that you'll run into somebody because they may be the cause of the problem Mm. and they probably know it. And so they're going to try and do an end run around you or they're going to try and block you from being successful or they're just going to push back at what you do because they're like all of us. We don't want to be called out if either you know you're not doing as well as you should or you just feel generally threatened. And I think your job is to de-escalate that as much as possible. I'm not here to fire anybody. I'm not here to rain on anybody's parade. I'm here to just be your resource. I'm here to help. I'm here to fix, to bring all of my personal experience in to help you fix whatever's ailing you. And getting past that is very difficult. Sometimes I've been successful. Sometimes I haven't. You know, I will never be arrogant enough to say, at the end, everybody loves Steven. They don't. At the end, some people especially when they know they've been the cause of the problem, want to do whatever they can to keep their fiefdom in place. But if you've been hired under genuine circumstances by the person bringing this is, I really need you to fix this. Eventually that person either goes or they come around because the person who's brought you in needs the problem resolved. If you've pointed out where it is, they've got a choice to make. And generally they'll side with you, if you will. Have you seen that more often than not, the problems that you get asked to deal with when you're trying to turn around a business are people-related or are there other factors? Some of it's people-related. A lot of it is process. So you mentioned Fortune 50 companies on down. Small firms, just by their very nature, you don't have you know 15 people in accounting. You have two, maybe one. And maybe it's prob- the owner. <laughs> you know, maybe it's the owner. And, and so there may be limited, um, limited knowledge about accounting, for example. Let's stay with that. The, the one firm that I stepped in as CEO, they had a, a two-person accounting department. And the person that was leading the accounting should not have been the accounting manager because um, this person's knowledge of accounting was very limited. And so... It, it's almost inseparable, the two, but some of it is people related. And especially smaller companies can't afford top tier talent. But yeah, I've been, you know, a controller for 15 years at a Fortune 500. A lot of times you can't afford that if you're a $3 million business trying to improve margins. But a lot of it is process. And again, while that's people related, if we had people that knew more, we could have better systems. Small companies just adapt. You're chasing cash. P&Ls are great, but at the end of the day, cash is king, right? I'll do whatever I need to to keep steady cash flow. And that comes at the expense of um, efficiency and processes that go from A to B to C that make sense, or they're more electronic than manual, or we have good communication. That usually goes by the wayside with smaller firms. And so it's really a combination of those two things that you mentioned that are usually the challenges. When I first started my tech services company, it was just me, right? And then I slowly started bringing on other people and I had 1099 contractors that were not staff and, you know, like I hadn't managed all of that stuff. And then at one point I started getting overwhelmed with handling, 
you know, I did all the bookkeeping and all of that. And then one day I woke up and I went, this is crazy. I think I'm doing all this right. You know, and I was a QuickBooks consultant and all that stuff too, but I wasn't a bookkeeper. I was not an accountant. And my dad had always taught me that know what you know and know what you don't know. And one of the first things I did was I hired an accountant that overlooked the books like every month he looked at everything. And then finally I got to the point where I could pay a, a bookkeeper. You know, it started out $15, uh, you know, an hour and eventually up to $20 an hour. And they would come in, you know, once a week and take all, everything and key everything yeah. into the systems and help with all the invoicing. And then hired a, an attorney that was there and sat in the background and reviewed all my contracts and things like that. When you look at the companies that you've worked with, with the lessons you've learned, running your own company, building it to the levels that you have, um, and all the different things, what are your thoughts on hiring people to do that that aren't part of your company, Right. that you're contracting with them to do that? Does that, yeah. I mean, it worked really well for me because I knew what I didn't know. And I didn't yeah. really want a full-time person on board doing yeah. that. Because, I, you know, I, I didn't need it. I wasn't a 10-figure a company, you know, built up to a seven-figure by the time we sold. But I didn't need a full-time person. Yeah. Well, first of all, uh, you know, shout out to your father because that's very, very good advice. The, the, the core of your question, the core answer to it, is the phrase that I've always used that guides my management philosophy and that's higher to your weakness. Now that is completely counter to our ego, which mm -hmm. says, I never want to show weakness as the manager, especially as the, you know, if you're in, a, in, a, in an executive position or a position of, of high leadership, you, you have to, people feel they have to project this image of, I know all. The most powerful words a manager could ever, ever use is, I don't know, but I'll find out. So your, your question of, this is typical entrepreneur. So now we're really talking about the small firms that are growing is first of all, some entrepreneurs should never run a company. End of story. You, you're brilliant at the ideas. You see the market vision, but you don't have the skills to run a company. So I think a successful entrepreneur, first of all, knows whether or not they should be involved <laughs> in the business or not. Okay. Which directly goes to, I need to hire people that have done this before and can turn my vision into reality. Now, some people are like you. They're this wonderfully amazing hybrid of, I've got the vision, but I've got the operational skills. I can get down in the weeds tactically and I know how to get a company up and running and I can operate it. So that is a rare animal, but every entrepreneur will reach a point where I can't do all this myself because there's 24 hours in a day and you're working 23 of them. Right. You know, you need 15 minutes of sleep and 15 minutes to eat. Right. Right. So there's and just an physically shower and an occasional <laughs> shower. So there's too much to do, especially when the company's growing and a smart entrepreneur, a smart company understands whether you're just starting out or you've hit a, the $3 million mark and you need to get to five and you have to expand. Contractors are a great way to do it. 
You know, you're not, obviously you're not going to keep counsel on staff. You don't need um, a CPA, but perhaps a controller or a seasoned accounting manager would be all you need to hand your books over. But in the interim, if you can't afford the employees, having contractors to help you get certain things across the finish line will do it faster than you'll ever be able to do. Unless you feel that knowledge is mission critical, why spend your time trying to learn Photoshop to do a logo? Right. And so if it's not part of your core tool set that you need, give it away to somebody and you'll find that you'll be able to get a lot more done and that gets you to revenue. It gets you to increase cash flow. So I'm a huge proponent of hiring to your weakness and contracting out in the early phase those things that you need to get done and get done quickly. I, I love that phrase, hire to your weakness. I never yeah. thought of it before. I guess that's some of what I used to do. But And, and thank you for your compliment on, sure. on my business skills and things like that. I know that when I ran my tech services company, I was a crappy manager. Yeah. I really was. I, I will admit it straight out that one of my failings was... I wasn't very good at managing my staff. I just expected everybody to know everything. You know, if I gave you a task, I just expected it to get done. And yeah. I get frustrated because you didn't. <laughs> Instead of stepping in and looking at, well, what knowledge transfer did I need to do? Did Was I clear with my goals? You know, or here's the deadlines here, let's sit and talk. And I see that as a something that, I often see inside companies as they're growing and then also when they're in challenges that often the people management causes a lot of the process management problems. How do you, when trying to figure out the best way to formulate that question, Stephen, because I know there, there's something in there, you know, with the, with the management issues, the people management issues, causing process management issues, mm-hmm. how do you begin to separate those and turn it into like a lesson that my my listeners can can start seeing before it develops into these really critical problems? Yeah, that makes great. Because I know I was kind of all over the place with that. No, no, it's, like it's, it's, it's perfect. I've got a couple of good, good answers to that. First of all, mm-hmm. I'm the same way. My first management experience, I became director of, of product management of 15 people within six months. My my solo position went to director and inheriting all these people, and I had no management experience. So I failed miserably because I micromanaged. I knew how to get this stuff done, but I didn't know that you have to trust your people to allow them to make the mistakes that they need to make in order to learn on their own. And so for me, the trick was learning how to dance on that razor thin manager's edge of not micromanaging, of delegating, and then holding your breath, knowing that some are not going to come through. Some won't do it the way you think they should. Some will only get it done 80% of the time, but is it good enough? And does it get the task accomplished? And can it be a teaching moment for your your employees, that's what it takes to grow employees is to allow them at times to fail. So that was a big lesson for me to learn. Get your hands off, delegate and let them try, let them succeed or let them fail. 
But, but when you, you be, be, just please. one sec there, because when you say let them fail, I mean, that just freaks me out. And I, oh, yeah. I know my listeners, that's freaking them out too, because for a lot of them, if that employee fails on a task, yeah. it could fail the client company. Right. So how do you, how do you balance that? But that's the core of being a good manager. Now, okay. I'm not suggesting that if you have some huge deadline that's due okay. and they're doing the presentation to the CEO, oh, that's all right, Joe or Mary or Fred, you can, you can just completely tank the thing and we'll miss the deadline. I'm not talking about that. But I was such a micromanager on even the smallest tasks that nobody had confidence in my leadership because they figured you know what, why bother doing this? Kaufman's just going to step in and fix it and change it anyway. And oh. so they weren't even motivated in the beginning to even give it a shot because they knew A, I was going to disapprove of how they did it or B, I would give them the task and then explain how I wanted it done. And human beings don't work like that. We want to be given something and we want the freedom to say, how do I tackle this, this assignment that I've been given? And they were very direct and brutal with their feedback because I asked to be reviewed by my, my peers or by my direct reports as well as reviewing them. And boy, it was very consistent in terms of get your mitts off my work and give me a shot at it. And once I did that, the turnaround was extraordinary. And, and so failure is part of learning. You know, you hear this about entrepreneurs all the time. The lessons that we learn are from the businesses that didn't succeed. As people, we learn more from adversity than we do from um, success. Just because when the harder you stumble, the greater you can stand. And so I don't mind if it's a sort of a non-critical piece. Um, I don't mind if an employee fails because that's how they learn. Just like I could look back and give you 150,000 examples of the times that I failed. But I wouldn't be here today if I hadn't been given the opportunity to trip and fall and then pull myself back up, learn what I need to, and then move that forward. Yeah, it's kind of like the best consultants are the ones who've been there, done that, so they can spot it before yeah. you do it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So to your, you know, to your question earlier too, is like, you know, what do you do with that? Because people and process are inseparable. You know, businesses are not run by robots. There may be a few on the production line, but the robots don't make the management decisions. People do. The robots don't um, create process flow. They don't have inner, interpersonal communication problems. So, um, I did a, a wonderful, uh, I was hired at Nike. Um, when a new manager comes in and takes over a group, as a mandatory part of their culture, Nike requires the hiring of an outside consultant oh. to come in and sit down with the existing crew and critique where is the group at and what was wrong with the prior management team. Like what isn't working and why. And they have a very specific process that you take those employees through that gives them the chance to kind of, A, get rid of the garbage that was there from the prior, the prior manager to give their unimpeded and um, unedited view of what they feel is needed. 
and then what they like to see from the new manager coming in. And you get all of that info, and then you meet privately with the new manager. And you explain that, and then you make the introduction. It's just extraordinary. It's an extraordinary level of honesty and directness. And that's one way to answer your question is you, you want to figure out how to move it forward, sit down and have the conversation that nobody wants to have. Okay. So if you're, if you're looking at it from an outsider in, yeah. and on the outside, it looks like, okay, well, we know there's problems. Yeah. Either it's cash flow problems or it's personality problems or whatever it is. How do you begin to create that conversation? Because I hear this all the time from my listeners that with their clients and with their staff and even with their spouses, one of the most difficult things they have is how do I start the conversation? Yeah. Yeah, I used to teach, uh, you know, the garbage man's guide that, um, you know, the metaphor is pretty easy for people to understand how to get rid of things that aren't working for you. And so it was very easy to adapt it to different topics. And so one of the courses that I adapted it to was um, how to have difficult conversations. And it, uh, it always broke down to three types. And um, one is you have to mitigate between two people who aren't communicating. So that's a difficult conversation. Um, The second one is, you know that you have to sit down and have that talk with that employee that's not working. So it's kind of a planned thing. And the third type of difficult conversation is when it comes out of the blue, all of a sudden something blows up. Oh yeah. So it, it always falls into those three categories. And there's different steps you take. If you know you have to have the conversation, I have some specific steps on how to prepare yourself for it. Probably the most important thing is to practice it with somebody. If you have to have a difficult conversation, grab a neutral third person and say, will you role play for me? Now, when you have the difficult conversation, it's never going to come out the same, but you'll at least be in the flow. It's not the first time you're doing it. So there's practice is really important. Mitigating, um, having a difficult conversation between two people who aren't getting along has a different set of preparatory skills. And then if one comes at you all of a sudden and boom, suddenly you're in a difficult conversation, there's specific tools you use for that. What underlies all three of those, Laura, for me, is the willingness to just have it. And to keep saying, especially if it doesn't involve you, let's say you have to have a difficult talk. It's like, look, I'm, I'm invested in your success. I want this to work out but we got to talk about stuff that's uncomfortable and I'm okay doing that. And I don't care if it gets messy, as long as it doesn't get mean and it's not personal, we're just here to get to the other side. So I'll hang in there as long as it takes. Okay. Now you say it's not personal, but typically it is right to whoever you're having this tough conversation with to them. it's, It's personal. I remember one time I actually said this, and the moment it left my lips, Stephen, I was appalled yeah. Yeah. that it left my lips. Yeah. I said, it's not personal, it's business. And as soon as those words left my mouth, yeah. I, I just, I went, well, wait, sorry. I know this is personal to you. Yeah. It, it is business, but I know this is personal to you because at some point down the pike, there is a person 
who's invested in something that a business yeah. decision is going to impact. Yeah. So how do you separate that, you know, to know that you have to have a tough business conversation? Yeah. Maybe it's you have to lay some people off. Maybe it's you need to reorganize. Maybe it's there's a project that has been a passion project that is just not working out. Yeah. And you need to shift direction and just stop it. There are a lot of people that are invested in that process that how what are your what are the lessons that you've learned that you would tell people? What do they need to be asking? What do they need to be saying to yep. temper that? Yeah. Number one, keep reminding the person that's brought you on board of your neutrality that you are not personally invested in it. And then keep reminding them right after that of the goals for them. I want you to be successful. You brought me in to help you with this, this, and this, and that is what I am laser focused on. You remind them that as difficult as this is in the long run, and you keep laying out the long-term vision that they've communicated with you, and you keep reinforcing that, which has them realize that's right, this pet project of mine, this draining cash out of the company and driving everybody crazy, that vision isn't market ready right now. And Steven's here to remind me that I'm here for everybody's success. So you keep bringing that forward to them. Okay. What and if they don't have you? Sorry? What if they don't have you though, Steven? And my listeners are going, I can't even imagine affording somebody like a Steven or a Laura. And they yeah. have to do this internally inside their company. And they're so vested in it. Yeah. Well, um, boy, this is where as an entrepreneur, it, it, this is where it does shift from business to personal because businesses are based in people and people have their flaws. You know, we have our things that we don't want to let go of. We have our, our garbage, if you will, using the old metaphor from the book, things that we hold on to that we know aren't helping us, but we hold on to it anyway. We hold on to it because it's rooted in a childhood issue that we don't want to let it go. Or our ego's involved and we're afraid of appearing. If I change course, oh my gosh, X, Y, and Z will think whatever of me. These are just, it's all part of being a human. But at the end of the day, if it's within the context of a business and you want your business to thrive, successful entrepreneurs know they have to self-sacrifice. Um, my favorite key on the keyboard when I'm writing is the delete key. Hmm. Because if I fall in love with my writing and I think I've just written a Shakespearean masterpiece and somebody reads and they're like, seriously, you could have said that in one paragraph instead of four pages. And, and I don't know how to let that go and do the difficult thing, which is highlight and delete. I will fail as a writer. And that metaphor, if you will, applies to every aspect of running a company. If you don't know how to let go, then you could be holding on to things that'll be an anchor on your business. And so if I were to offer any advice to anybody, it's learn to learn to eat your young. You know, learn how to, it's your baby and you love it, but you got to learn when to get rid of it. Because if it's, if it ain't working, 
you know, it's dragging you down and you don't need it. Successful entrepreneurs pivot. You mentioned Brendan Burchard. Now, Brendan, we know is extraordinarily successful. How do you take a guy that packs, you know, basketball stadiums and he now has the number one podcast? He's converted himself to an online presence with the same behemoth approach that he takes to everything that he does. It's learning how to adapt, how to pivot, how to be fleet footed, how to not be so attached so that you can't have those difficult conversations and say, I'm jettisoning this and I'm trying that. Now I'll go cry later on because that was my pride and joy. But my commitment is to the success of the business. If you don't have a Laura in your company to help you, then what you have to have is a maintenance of your own vision of success and a willingness to say, I will do whatever it takes, including 180 degree pivots in order to keep that success in front of me. I just, I don't know if you could see me trying to look at you and write at the same time. Yeah. That, I got goosebumps. Yeah. <laughs> with what you just said. Some questions that popped up that yeah. I think that came from that were asking yourself as a business owner, am I doing this or not doing this for my ego or because of my ego? So is my ego driving this? Yeah. Yeah. We're not driving this. And then where is my commitment? Is my commitment to the success of the business or to yeah. my ego? That goosebumps all over me. Yeah. Yeah. Because I could see, as you were talking, I could see these moments go through my brain of when I had my tech services business, when I've coached people, and even now with my current business of where it's going, there's like, I haven't written another book and it's because of ego. I'm, I'm like afraid. Yeah. I, I can't focus on a topic because I'm thinking, well, what if it's not received as well? Or, um, well, who's, cause I haven't done anything for several years. Who's going to listen to me kind of thing. Right. And then this thought of, well, wait, I've had a successful broadcast radio show for five years, but it yep. wasn't big enough in my mind because in my ego, it needed to be bigger than it was. So that, that concept, that whole idea, Stephen, of that, which is very much your book, which by the way, everybody, Stephen doesn't talk about this book very much, Garbage Man's Guide to Life. I think it should be in everybody's <laughs> business book shelf. I mean... I, I need to reread the book. I read it years ago when it came out and you have a workbook and everything with it. It's really, really great. And I know you're doing lots of new, really cool things, but that book was amazing to me. Um, so this whole idea, Stephen, of this ego and where is your commitment? I, I, it's just brilliant. <laughs> Thank you. Well, your questions at the, at the top of the show, your questions began broad, but then they began to narrow down. And you you hit a, a nail on the head that a lot of entrepreneurs don't piece together. Or I think managers, I don't care if you're talking about a one-person LLC or, a, you know, a, an Intel or a Nike or, or whatever, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of people. Businesses are run by human beings and process and people are inseparable. 
Yeah. And so many times I find where process is broken, where interdepartmental communication is not happening, or where entrepreneurs are struggling with specific issues in their company, so many times it comes down to an individual personality, an unwillingness to let go, an, an extraordinary attachment to an idea that, quite frankly, is screaming, ringed in neon, I'm no good. This isn't working. But it's hard to let stuff go. And, it's, and, and we make up all these things. Oh, if I let it go, I am. I'm a failure. I'm a lousy business person. What you were saying, I nobody's going to accept the ideas that I have. You know, all this. Here's the truth. Business itself is actually just a bunch of facts. I placed a PO. Somebody bought this. Today, I did not write. Today, I made a decision. It, it's actually just a bunch of facts. All the other stuff I just said a moment ago, it's all here. It's our interpretation. It's our opinion. None of it's based in fact. It's based on who we are and what we make it mean. And so if you can learn to step back some and just say, I've got a business decision to make. I've got this thing that's so near and dear to me, but I'm going to objectify myself a little bit and say, do I really think that's working? If you can get a little bit of that skill, it's earth shattering what that does in helping you run your business. Emotions for entrepreneurs are such a key part of, of their start, right? Yeah. Because entrepreneurs start because they have a passion for something. They feel they can solve something or they just want to get away from something sometimes. What do you say to an entrepreneur that they're getting ready to, no, change that around. COVID has shaken up their premise, whether it's they've started a restaurant and it's just not working because the way COVID is, or they ha have a business that requires in-person and in-person's not really happening a lot. What do you say to them to enable them to see some other possibilities yeah. from the lessons that you've learned? Yeah. Um, well, part of it goes back to it's time to have that difficult conversation about how my business is going to adapt in this new environment and how do I remain fleet footed. Seek advice as much as you can. Friends, family, business associates. Can I, can I buy you a virtual cup of coffee and can you, I'm, I think I can move here. Can I get some opinion or get some advice? So I think talking more than we may be used to talking about our businesses and where we're at and seeking counsel and advice is very important in this moment. Um, some of it is giving yourself the quiet time to think creatively. So if you're running a restaurant, obviously right now you've probably, if you're trying to survive, have contacted everybody on your email list says, please come. If you have you know, one. If you, if you had one. You've obviously, you know, hopefully done online ordering, you know, you, you've done all the things that all your competitors have done as best as they can to convert to a non face-to-face um, -face business or minimal contact. Then do you have the creativity to think, what else could I do that they're not? 
because that's the key question entrepreneurs should always ask anybody in business. What could I do that my competitors aren't that makes me stand out and draws more people to me? To have that level of creativity, you have to have some, some clear space. We call that uh, emptiness in the book where you throw everything out. You know, imagine you've had a picture on the wall for 20 years. And one day you go over and you take that picture down and you step back. That wall looks totally different now. Oh, completely different. Right. And the possibilities of what you can do with that wall are now endless. But you never would have noticed that if you just kept that picture there. So what I'm talking about is when you take the picture off the wall, in other words, you do all the things you have to do to say, well, this is what every other restaurant's doing. So I've done it too. Take the picture off the wall. Step back and ask, now what else could I be doing that they aren't that may further enhance my attractiveness to my customer base and help me survive? So those are some initial things I've been telling people. And then sometimes you may also have the stark reality that your business may not survive this type of business, you know, this type of environment. If your business is heavily dependent on person to person, there's only a certain period of time where it may not be able to pivot, which is a whole nother conversation. But um, whatever it takes to hold on and be creative and maybe do something nobody else is might be enough to keep you going until things come back to some semblance of normal. Okay, so let's take that thing that you just said. That's a whole nother conversation. Yeah. You took, you've taken the picture off the wall. You've got this blank wall that you're looking at that you probably haven't seen in a really long time, right? Yeah. And you realize you have no more thoughts on what you can do. Now what's the conversation? Do you fold? Do you try a completely different kind of business? Do you talk to your clients? I mean, when you're, when you're at that moment where you realize, because I think this is someplace that a lot of entrepreneurs never like to look, yeah. which is, you know what? Either this isn't working anymore, period, or it's just not working for me, right? Because maybe they've been confronted with this whole idea that I'm working 30 hours, a day and there's only 24 in a day. So I'm just constantly working, working, working. It, my health is failing. The money's not coming in. I've tried to pivot 10 different ways from Sunday. This isn't working. What do you say to those people to help them, number one, actually see that moment and go, okay, I'm going to break down in tears and cry and that's okay. I remember sitting on the floor of my office one day with hundreds of thousands of dollars of contracts out there, and I fired everybody except my office manager. <laughs> All my engineers, gone, yeah. right? Just, yeah. I was done. And I cried. And then I literally said a prayer, okay, now what do I do? And I heard a voice say, pick up the phone and call Gary. And I called my friend Gary and he's like, okay, let me make some phone calls. And he made some phone calls. And some of my peers took my phone calls, you know, so that I could get these contracts done and, and all those different things. But 
not everybody can get through that moment. I mean, I had the insights from my dad and some core group of people that I knew could help me through that. But when you when you're in that moment, Stephen, what do you say to somebody to go? Okay, we need to just stop and maybe close this company and go do something different. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, let's open, let's put a light where, you know, this is opening the cellar door and nobody wants to go down there. But, but it's a reality, first of all, especially now. Well, first of all, it's, it may happen whether you want it or not. Cash, cash flow. Um, uh, the best example I could tell you was a nonprofit. It was my daughter's daycare when she was very young. It was an absolute magical agency. I mean, it just, the kids loved it. The teachers loved it. But when I came in as treasurer of the organization, I uncovered the fact that the former director was borrowing from next month to pay this month. So you're living on future revenue to pay current bills, which is just a deadly place to be. And all it took was one donor who decided not to re-up their donation for that year. And it imploded very quickly. And that's what happens to a lot of businesses. So you may be sitting on the precipice, but it goes fast. And so some of it is you may not have the choice of having the discussion. The business is going to close because you'll reach a point where expenses and debt will outstrip revenue and you know the game's over and you're done. Now, if you're lucky enough to be on the precipice of it and you see it's going to happen, there's two choices. You can just sit back and and pretend it's not there and it'll happen for you because debt callers will come knocking, rent will be due, and there won't be the cash to pay it. And then you'll have to take steps. Or if you see it's coming and it's inevitable, and you know you can't turn it around, then you have to, in some respects, almost put your grief aside and say, I've got business I have to attend to. I have to discuss closure, you know, with my landlord, discuss it with, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Or, if you think it it's going to close, but maybe it's salvageable, maybe there's some extraordinary conversations you have to have with your landlord. Uh, you want an empty space or you want to give me 75% off my rent for the next three months because I think I can make this happen. And some people don't like asking for stuff like that, but right. you, you have to get yourself in motion if you think it's salvageable. If you're at the point where you can see it, the darkness coming, and you have to close, then the best thing to do is try and do it with as much grace and um, I think as much objectivity as you can to try and wrap the affairs of the business up as neat as you possibly can. And then when it's done, then you then you grieve. You take the tough steps that you did. You sit on the floor, you cry, and you let your staff go. I've, I've been there. I've done it. It's horrific. And it's what it's part of being a business owner. And um, there's no easy way to do it, Laura, other than the only way around it is through it. And that stuff doesn't happen in a vacuum either. I mean, a, a business doesn't go from profitable to not profitable overnight. Yeah. It may feel like it if you're not paying attention to the business throughout, but it doesn't just happen overnight. Right. So what are some things that, business owners should be thinking about 
to make sure that it doesn't hit you in the face. Yeah. Well, like first, first thing is live in your financials. You should be looking at your P&L balance sheet, but really most importantly, your cash flow. And that's probably where most small businesses live is you've got to pay attention to your finances and really stay focused on what's coming in and what's going out. And as much as you can, try and squeeze what's going out. Go negotiate every contract. Ask for longer payment terms. Negotiate with the landlord, whatever it takes to minimize cash going out during this period. So I think that's the first thing is, even if you don't like numbers, in fact, that's the biggest advice for a lot of entrepreneurs don't like numbers. They just want to work on the operations. They just right. want to work in the idea. If oh, I'm supposed to send out invoices? I didn't know I was supposed to do that. Gee, you know, <laughs> so it's like for people that owe you revenue, you've got to chase them. You've got to use, I need to get paid. And maybe you have to work out extended payment terms with them, which then means you turn around for those that you have to pay and do the same thing. And that's very uncomfortable for a lot of people. They don't like dealing with the money. They just want the fun stuff, right? which is the idea. This is not that time. So that would be one piece of advice, I would say. The second is, as you kept, as you were talking about earlier, process, whatever your company is, it has infrastructure. It has ways it gets things done. This is a great time to tear into that. And find out, is there something I can do that will save money, save time, which is the same thing. Um, you'll eventually save money because you're doing something better. Um, is there a different set of vendors I could use that are more efficient or less expensive? This is a great time to examine that in your business and make those shifts, some macro, some micro, that could put you on a more competitive stance that might get you through this difficult period. So minimize what's going out, maximize what's coming in and use this opportunity to streamline every aspect of your business so you stay as lean as you can. That's really, really great advice. I mean, I see this all the time and I know you see this all the time that you have to look at what you don't want to look at. Right. And who wants to do that? Nobody. You know, I, I don't want to do that. I don't want to spend time, you know, but I, I've been lucky is that I've done every job in a company, you know, from the production line to the, the, the CEO. And, and so I've got a feel for those. So numbers don't bother me like they used to. But boy, early on in my career, I didn't want anything to do with the financials because I had this thing going in my head. Well, I don't know anything about finance. I never studied accounting in college. Right. Well, thanks. That four bucks will get you something hot at Starbucks, Stephen. Go look at the numbers. Go figure it out. And so I started asking questions and eventually I got more comfortable with my financials. Now, the, being the geek that I am, I enjoy the story that the numbers tell. Right. But I still know 5% of what there is to know. You know, accounting is big, but the fundamentals aren't. Anybody can grasp them. And it's what, what's going out, what's coming in. So um, uncomfortable as it may be, it's so important for anybody running a business to learn to love your numbers. Yeah. It's like, I still have a checkbook. This is yeah. my personal checkbook, right? And yeah. business finances are just like your checkbook. Yeah. 
if you write more checks than you have money coming in, you're in a deficit. Your business is the same way. There's just exactly. a lot more pieces going on and, and, and about it. Yep. And you don't have to have an accounting degree to really understand the finances of your business. It's actually not that complex. It's as common sense as you just mentioned. And there are some basic fundamentals that you can stop there and you'll be, you'll feel so much more empowered because that's another piece of your business that you may not have known that now you own. Right. I get it. I know it. And now that increases your commitment to it because you feel like you're more in control of that thing that scared you the most. Oh, you know what? That's not a lion. It's actually a kitten. And now it's like, okay, I got this. And that just spurs you on to the next thing that you may not feel comfortable tackling. But you know what? If I can tame that one, I'm going after that one. Yeah. And, and there's nothing wrong with sitting down with an accountant and saying, explain my books to me. Absolutely. That's what you're paying them for. Yeah. So great idea. I love it. I love it. Well, we're almost at the end of the show. And I would love it if you would share with people how they can get in touch with you, how they can get some of these great resources that you have. I know you're doing a lot of volunteer work as well with some different organizations with kids and different things. So um, let's share that. You bet. Well, my consulting company is called redfender.com. Um, red and fender, like on a truck. And everybody's like, where the heck did that come from? When I was starting, I started a company in the waste management industry, which is what eventually led to the book. And um, I was trying to think up a name. And so I thought of the name Routeware, you know, software for routing. I thought, okay, well, that's kind of boring. And then that was, this is the 90s where you can name something, you know, Blue Heron, and it was worth a billion dollars before you got it off the ground. I'm driving along. There's a white garbage truck going by, but it had a red fender on it that they clearly it just welded on, but hadn't had time to paint. Okay. And so I thought, oh, red fender. So that's my consulting company. I presented that to the investors and they kind of looked at me like, uh, no. <laughs> so <laughs> I kept that for more, really it's more for sentimental purposes, but hop over to redfender.com. You can see all my consulting services. There's a little contact us form and uh, would welcome an inquiry for anybody if there's anything I can do to help them. And I know that on the Facebook Live, we haven't had a chance to look and answer any questions. So if anybody, you're watching the Facebook Live and you have questions, post there. And Stephen and I will be monitoring off and on to answer any questions that might come up with that. And if you're listening on podcast, um, Stephen, what's the best way? Do they go to redfender.com contact list? Do they find you on social media, email? How do they reach out? Yeah, we have a Red Fender page on Facebook and you can find me, Stephen Kaufman, on LinkedIn. You can go to redfender.com and uh, those are all ways that you could reach out. Um, also, I'm at, uh, if you get a pencil, I'm at 503-203-1500. And that uh, that's 503-203-1500. And that rings to a landline and my cell, which is always by my side, is all good entrepreneurs have. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, I want to thank you so much for being on the show and everybody just also, I know Stephen doesn't talk about this because he's doing a lot of other work, but pick up a copy of The Garbage Man Guides to Life. I love that book. I really do. And it's, it's such a foundational book for all the work that you're doing now for companies. It really, really is just getting rid of that head trash, which is such a, such a problem for my, so many businesses. That's where 
you and I have seen throughout our our careers where most yeah. of the business fails happen yeah. is in that head trash that that's great well it's still selling on amazon which is great fun and uh or if you want an autographed copy just reach out through some of the areas i've got i've got here i got copies here glad to sign one and pop it in the mail to you oh, cool i don't have an autographed copy then we're gonna we're gonna get that taken cool. care of excellent i'm excited <laughs> about that that's just had to put my because if you don't ask, you don't get right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> right. Everybody, this is I've had so much fun here with Stephen Kaufman today, uh, Red Fender, and he shared some amazing, amazing questions and thoughts for all of you as entrepreneurs. Whether your business is in a crisis mode or it's not in a crisis mode, if you're thinking about just starting a business or you've had a business for a lot of years, these questions that we talked about, these insights that Stephen shared, are critical. Whatever phase your business is. If you have any questions, reach out to Stephen, reach out to me. We are here to help you because our goal as always, and my goal with this show is to help shift your perspective, teach you some new questions so that you can take your business and your life to the next level. And as I always say, the right questions can change your life. So what are you asking today? Have a great day, everyone. You've been listening to It's All About the Questions, starring Laura Stewart. Connect with Laura at itsallaboutthequestions.com and download a free workbook that will help you ask better questions starting today.